Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for a time that we could gather around your word and gather to worship you. And Father, we pray that you would just go before us, Lord, that you'd open up our our understanding, open up our hearts and our minds to what you have for us, Lord. We pray that you would uh, give us an understanding of your word and help us to apply it to our lives, Lord. We thank you for tonight, for those that are here and gathered together, Lord, to worship you. I pray that you would just be glorified. Father, we again, we lift up just uh, this time before you, Lord. And Father, right now, we also just uh, lift up again uh, the Kingsbury family, uh, Lord, just in uh, the passing of uh, Ashley, Lord, we just pray that you'd continue to comfort the family, guide them, and be with them uh, through this very difficult time. And uh, Lord, again, we thank you for being a God that can comfort us in all situations and trials. And we thank you, Lord, for the common salvation that we have in Christ, that we know when we leave this place that we will see you. And so to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so, Lord, thank you for that confident hope and that guarantee in the cross. Father, again, be with us now as we just celebrate you and continue to lift you up and uh, worship you. Father, we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, guys. You can be seated. So this evening, uh, a couple announcements, a couple real big ones, really. Uh, mostly, uh, number one, uh, Unity Fest is coming up um, next Sunday, right? Yes. So uh, next Sunday is Unity Fest, so please remember to be inviting people out for that. Um, really want to encourage that. We'd love to see as many people here as possible. And so it looks like the weather right now is, is going to be great for it, so we're excited for that. So uh, be praying for that. Be asking the Lord to do a great work there. Um, also, we're asking and encouraging you, if you want to bring a dish to pass, you can sign up at the Welcome Center. So go ahead and do that. If you want to bring a dish to pass, we encourage you to do that. And then also, uh, don't forget, there will be a water inflatable so we remind you of that with kids or anything to bring uh, swimming trunks and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a great day. Uh, with next week being Unity Fest, uh, we will not have our Sunday evening service. We'll pick that up again the next week. And so just continue to be um, keeping that in mind. Uh, also want to let you know about, oh, what was the other thing? I say that and then it was like just gone. What else was there? Oh, the, uh, yes, the um, laundry soap collection. Uh, that's going to be set up on a table starting next Sunday. We're doing it for the whole rest of this month. And so you can bring in uh, laundry soap, liquid, powder, pods, whatever, uh, whatever brand, doesn't matter. Uh, we're just trying to collect as much as we can for the month of July for Kids in Distress Services, which is out of the Port Huron area. And then also don't forget that there will be for the uh, Revelation Wellness uh, class that usually meets on Tuesdays. They are still meeting this Tuesday, July 4th, 9 a.m. as normal. Uh, this time, uh, families are invited. So anyone that maybe has wanted to come but work or different things, now you don't have to worry about that because you have the day off. You are welcome to come as well. So this is for anyone and everyone to come. Uh, again, Tuesday, 9 a.m., normal time, normal day. Um, and it says right there that you can bring uh, a water bottle. All right, if you have questions on that, you can see Renee in the back back there, or even Julie could probably give you more information on that. Um, also want to let you know about our upcoming open houses. Keep those marked on your calendar. Fifth Sunday Praise is coming up. Um, the end of this month, so keep that in mind. And then also, just a side note, if you guys would just be praying for um, me, I'm just going to kind of ask for that, I guess. Uh, 
So July 12th, um, we're still having our normal Wednesday evening services, um, but I'm going to be speaking at a friend of mine's church down in Wayne. I've done this the last few summers. Uh, he has different pastors come in through the summer. It's probably a pretty good idea to get the summer off is really what it is. It's just he doesn't want to preach on Wednesday nights, and so he just says, well, we're going to do this special summer thing. Um, he got it from his dad, though. His dad did the same thing. But So uh, I'm going to be down there on the 12th preaching for them at... Um, Wow, I just lost the name of the church. Hillcrest. I always want to call it Oak Hill. I don't, why Oak Hill? I have no idea. But um, at Hillcrest, a Bible church in Wayne. So if you guys would be lifting that up in prayer, that the Lord would just use that time for them. Um, and then also potentially uh, July 17th uh, is uh, the junior camp at Camp Michael. So the 17th, which is a Monday through that Saturday morning, um, I'll be speaking out there for morning and evening chapel. So just be praying for that, that that'll go well. I'll still be here at the church. We'll still be having normal services. I'll be here on Wednesday night and stuff for us. Um, but just if you guys would be praying for that, I would really appreciate that because um, it's just amazing. The Lord gives us these opportunities to share his word. And so I just want to make sure we do that without any kind of hindrance or distraction or anything like that. Yes. Yeah, so um, so really what happened is I was supposed to speak, actually this last, the week we're ending now, I was supposed to speak this week at that junior camp. Um, unfortunately, and this is kind of public knowledge, so we're not really saying anything that we can't say out loud, um, or to public, or with uh, the public knowing. Um, they had an issue with their insurance uh, company. The insurance that they had apparently dropped them. Um, speaking to the director, there was really no warning, no reason no understanding of why they just decided to no longer support them and carry them. And so they began the process of getting new insurance. And that process has been going on for really honestly, probably, I think he said two months. Um, and they were supposed to have insurance by June 10th, which would have been a couple weeks before their first camp. Um, and they found out on June 9th or June 10th that it was going to be delayed and so they were told the Friday before their first camp started, which just last week would have been their first week of camp, that they were going to have it by then. And they got a call on like Thursday night or Friday morning saying, no, it's not going to happen by, by Monday for camp. So they called me, I think it was Friday at like 9 or 9.30, the director called me and just said, hey, I'm really sorry, but this is what, you know, we have to kind of cancel the camp week. Um, but be praying for that because um, just what little bit I've got to know, the director and his wife, very passionate for Christ, uh, have a huge heart for camp ministry. And so they are super bummed. I talked to Pastor Paul Gaiman over at Faith because he was at our archery event. Um, he's helping out there as one of the, like, I don't know if he's on the board officially, but they're a big part of the camp. Um, and him and I talked a little bit, and he said that they've been on the phone in tears trying to pray for the Lord to work this all out and stuff. So be praying for them. Uh, once they get the finalized insurance that they need, and I don't really understand why it's not happening, uh, they don't really seem to know either. Um, but then once they get that, they'll be good to go for whatever camps they can do, whatever weeks they can do. So be praying for the leadership at Camp Michael. Um, John and Rachel Desjardins are their names. Um, just hugely burdened by this, and so pray that the Lord will make that happen. Um, but that's what they've been praying for a while now. So yes, technically, they aren't hosting camps, but their goal is that once they get the insurance, they'll continue through their summer. So, which also affects all the staff. People have come on, counselors, expecting to have a summer you know, job, and that's obviously not happened yet as well. So. But no, I appreciate you asking that. Yep, so be praying for that as well. Um, all right, so 
We're diving into Psalm 5, so we're picking up from the devotion that we started last week. So if you were with us last week, you have a handout. If you were not with us last week, we do have some extras up here. So is there anyone that needs a copy of the text? A couple of people. All right. These are new ones. And then if you need a clipboard, Scott's going to help you out with the clipboard. Anthony, that's yours from last week. I got it. It's fine. All right, so if you need a clipboard, let Scott know. Does anyone need a pen? Pens? 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 I really want to throw one. So if somebody in the back could need one, Evan, you don't need a pen. I know I don't want to poke out an eye. I'll just close my lazy one and throw it that way and see if that works. I'm just kidding. I'm not throwing a pen. Does you guys really need pens? No, I'm not going to just do that for fun. Someone's going to get hurt, and then I'm going to get sued, and yeah. What? You need one? Oh. Does anyone really need, Do you need one, Melody? Oh. I, yeah, but you look like you really needed one. That one's won't retract. I don't want to give you that one. Thanks. Try that one. Oh, you need one? Oh. <laughs> that wasn't on me. That's a good one, Jeff. That's a good one. It's okay. All right. So, uh, we last week, we only covered the first three verses in this text. So, what we're going to do is, I know that some of you guys obviously were with us last week, and you already got to work through the text. You've already made some notes. But obviously, for those that weren't with us, we still want to give you some time to do this as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the normal 10 minutes that we usually give you. We'll let you work through the text. For those that are new with us or haven't done this yet, uh, really what you have before you is just a printout of Psalm 5, um, verses 5 through 12. There are two verses on the back, just for reference there so you know that. There are two verses on the back. Um, We're going to give you 10 minutes. Here's what we want you to do. Just basically make observations as you read through the text. So read through, you're looking for conversations, who's talking to who, um, if titles are being used. I'll give you a little bit of a background here. We already covered the first three verses, so you're going to want to note the names and the titles that David, the author of this psalm, gives to God. So that would be an example of you'd be circling those or underlining those things. If there are um, specific things being talked about, you can underline those things. If there's words that strike you as kind of interesting or confusing or just jump out at you, you can do that. Um, if you feel like there's a flow to the psalm, you can bracket those verses together. And so whatever observations you want to make as you read through here, we're really just reading through the text, making some observations about the text, and then we're going to break it apart together in just a few minutes. All right, so we'll give you about 10 minutes to go ahead and do that. So you guys can go ahead and begin.
Right about 10 minutes, so we'll go ahead and uh, work on the text together for just a little bit. So just as a reminder or maybe a review for those that were here last week, um, those that were not, obviously just kind of, um, we're not going to go through all of what we went through last week, but we do want to give you some kind of basic things here. So we talked about last week, if you were with us, or maybe if you weren't, but you just kind of have an idea of what the answer would be to this. Uh, what was something that we noted about 
looking at a psalm that is really important when it comes to interpretation. There was something that we talked about. It's really crucial to kind of look at it this way when you're talking about interpreting a psalm. What was the key thing, Terry? Right. So we do not base a view of God only on a psalm. So we don't build our theology in a psalm. What, are the psalm. what does a psalm do to our theology, though? It reinforces it, right? So we already have a view of God from the weight of Scripture. So we believe God is this, whatever it is. God is good. God is gracious. God is holy. So we already, from the obvious, clear Scriptures, we get that theology, that view of God. And then we read the psalm, and that reinforces that view or that belief, Okay, why is it that we do not base our theology at first in a psalm? Why do we not do that? What's that, Barb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? What you're going to say, Sandra? Yeah. So Sandra was like this. She's like, no, nope, not that. Um, Psalm is poetry, right? So there's figures of speech. There's different expressive ways of talking. There's a lot of emotion. Uh, some of the things that are talked about here are very um, heartfelt, which is good. But sometimes the psalmist, as, in, as they're venting and, and expressing their feelings, by the end of the psalm, they come to a point of understanding, okay, God is good. God is worthy of praise, all these things. But sometimes as these human beings are expressing themselves, the Bible's recording the emotion they're feeling, which is good, but that emotion or that feeling is not exactly biblical, godly sometimes. Does that make sense? It's like this. The Bible records Abraham lying, but obviously the Bible doesn't affirm Abraham lying. But the Bible records it for us because it's recording the historical fact of what happened. So in the Psalms, we have a lot of poetry, a lot of expression that way. Beautifully written, very heartfelt, but sometimes if we're not careful, some of the emotion that's being shared, which is good, if we take some of that and just pull that out and build around that, we can end up with a very wrong view of God. A very human God, right? A very a God that's not balanced in holiness and love. Because some of the Psalms, you can hear, God, you need to crush them. Like you need to obliterate them because they're coming against me. We're going to talk about it tonight. Yes, God will have judgment. But sometimes the psalmist, as they're speaking these things and, and recording these things, it's not balanced as it should be. So sometimes you have to just kind of step back, okay? I see it as a, as a poetry, as I see it as figurative or different lang ways of language. Um, I don't take it literal in the sense that it means exactly what it says. I take it literal, so a figure of speech is a figure of speech and so on, okay? Um, also, from last week... You can go ahead and bracket uh, Psalm 5, 1 through 3. That was kind of our opening. Uh, this is David's kind of opening confession. David is the author of this psalm. And it's believed that he is uh, in a very difficult situation. We talked about a reference you could jot down for this psalm would be 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 14. So 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 14. Uh, this is also considered a mourning psalm, not mourning like grieving, mourning like time of day, along with Psalm 3. So these, those are two examples of a mourning psalm. Why do you think we call it a mourning psalm? Why is it classified that way? What? Okay, where, where do we get that this most likely was said in the morning? 
in the passage, right? Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, right? My king and my God. So we need to circle all those things. Lord, king, God. Verse 3, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. So again, this was a commitment from David. Whether I feel like it or not, you're going to hear my voice in the morning, Lord. I'm going to call out to you in the morning. And so again, this is a, I'm beginning my day with this mindset, with this approach to the day. So we unpacked a lot of that. We talked a lot about the prayer life of David. We talked about the prayer life of believers today. Um, And if you weren't with us, one more thing I'd have you underline is the phrase, look up. I will look up. And look up is dealing with Many people shared a lot last week, and I, I loved it. Some said it's like looking to the hill where my help comes from, to the Lord, right? Others would interpret this to say, look up means to look forward with anticipation that God is going to answer the prayer. So I will give it to God in prayer, and then I'm going to look up for the anticipation of God doing something in regards or in response to this prayer. Now, this is not David saying, okay, I'm going to look up because you're going to do exactly what I want, God. David's looking up saying, I'm surrendering to you, my king, my God, my Lord. There's humility here. So moving through the rest of the psalm, we're going to go to verse 4. And so uh, verses 4 through 6 would be the next kind of grouping that uh, I kind of put together. So 4 through 6. And if I can get a volunteer that would like to read just 4 through 6, that would be great. I know normally we read the whole thing, but we're just going to do it this way this, this evening. Sandra, 4 through 6. Okay, thank you. So here we see, and we talked last week when we ended, I said, was there anything in this psalm that was uncomfortable, that maybe you didn't like reading, that struck you as as kind of not fitting into the character of God? And one of the things someone said was right there when it talks about in verse 6, it talks about destroying them. And then verse 10, destroy thou them, O God. And so this idea of destruction and destroying individuals. But then also that phrase, that talks about the fact in verse 5 that God hates all workers of iniquity. So we're going to break this apart and talk about what is the psalmist talking about here and how does this compare with other scriptures. So the first thing we have to note is that David now transitions to reminding himself of God's character. So David starts the prayer with crying out to him, submitting to him, humbling himself before him, but remembering he's in a very difficult situation, right? He's under extreme pressure, uh, threat of death, all these things are going on. And now what he does is in the midst of that, he reminds himself of the character of God, the nature of God, which is always a great idea when we feel pressure from the world. We feel trial and tribulation. When you start feeling that pressure, don't start telling yourself how amazing you are how strong you are, begin reminding yourself of the character of God. No, God is good. God is over this. God is working his plan. Whatever the Lord brings to your mind, begin reminding yourself of the character of God. Even though it looks like the wicked are winning, and by the way, we're in a culture right now that looks like darkness is winning. It's everywhere. It looks like it's just everywhere you turn, there's one more thing you hear about that you never thought you'd ever hear about, and then there's another thing you'd hear about you never thought you'd hear about. It's like there's this wickedness in the world today. And you can start thinking, man, the, the, the enemy's winning until we stop and remind ourselves of the character of God and say, no, that's what my perception is telling me. But the word of God and truth tells me he's over all things. And he is working all things for his 
glory. And so we remind ourselves of these things. So what does David declare about God's character? Well, there's a couple of things that he declares. The first thing David declares about God's character is that the foolish will not stand before him. The foolish will not stand before the Lord. Now, in your notes there under verse 5, you can jot down Psalm 1, 5. That famous Psalm 1, right? And we can even, Psalm 1, 5 says this, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So what is David doing? He's reminding himself, these foolish, wicked people are all around me. These, these people that are turning their back on God and rejecting God, they might look like they're winning and advancing, but they cannot even stand in God's presence. They can't even be in God's presence. Now, we know, again, taking all of Scripture, the wicked will actually be brought before God, right? One day, all of us will stand before God. Some before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for the things we've done in Christ as saved individuals. Others before a judgment seat and be cast away as workers of iniquity. And so we're all going to stand before him one day. So when David says they can't stand in your presence, he doesn't mean literally they won't be in his presence. What is he saying? They can't stand with confidence. There's no, there's no courage in them. Right now, the wicked are very courageous. Right now, the wicked are, are loud and advancing their causes, and they're, they're kind of in your face. They're very courageous and bold, right? And we just finished a whole month talking about how courageous and bold these individuals are. And yet one day, they'll stand before Christ, and there'll be no confidence. There's no courage. There's no boldness. Because what does the Bible say they will be aware of in that moment? That he is Lord. And they will, rather than stand, what are they going to do? They're going to bow. Not in adoration, not as you are my savior, but as you are my judge. And they will equally know, according to God's word, not only who God is, but I truly believe they'll know who they are. And by the way, we're all naturally workers of iniquity. It's only that those in Christ have been forgiven by grace. So we'll know who we are too, even fuller than we do now. And I've always thought this, if you think grace is amazing now, and you're overwhelmed by grace now, wait until you get to see what God sees in the sense of who you really are, then grace will overwhelm you. I think that's why when people really in the Bible have visions of the throne, they are just laying before the throne in just complete humility because they know, what does Isaiah say? I'm a worker of iniquity. I speak, right? I'm among people who are, we're just unclean. We can't stand in his presence. And so again, David is not saying they can't stand in that way. We should not stand before them for counsel. That's the idea of Psalm 1-5. So the foolish will not stand before him, but also David declares God's character in acknowledging that God hates all workers of sinful acts. And you need to note something here under that phrase, hatest all workers of iniquity. It is not emotional. It is judicial. This is not an emotional hatred. This is a judicial hatred, meaning a judgment of righteousness. This is a appropriate judgment upon workers of iniquity. So you can jot down two more references. Psalm 11 verse 5 speaks to this idea as well. And obviously one of the more famous ones, Romans 9 and verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Yep, Psalm eleven five, Romans nine thirteen. Both of these verses, along with Psalm 
5 here speak of God hating the sinner. Now, again, we talked about this last time. How can it be if we have been told God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Now, in a couple of commentaries, and as I was studying this out, go figure, more than one commentary just skipped this whole verse. Didn't even address it, which really frustrates me because they're the ones that are supposed to know all this. That's where I go. I'm like, I don't know. Let me go ask these, these guys in these books. Oh, wait, they just skipped it. Another commentary, or I'm sorry, not a commentary, another translation, because I also like looking at various English translations, and there are just a huge amount of English translations. Some a little better than others, but still translations of God's word. Most of them fell pretty much within the realm of what we see in the King James here. The idea of hating iniquity, hating workers of sin, something like that. One translation that I came across speaks to God hating the works of the wicked is how it was translated. You hate the works of the wicked. But those are two very different things. One is you hate the work that they do. And the other is you hate the person. And this does not sit well with us because, again, we've been taught, right? I, I came to Christ at 16 in this church, and I was always taught you, hate this, or you, hate, you love the sinner and you hate the sin. Now, that's, a, that's not a bad thing to love the person enough to share Christ with them. That's the idea. But again, what did Ben Lair say a couple weeks ago? We need to grow in love, but not love without discernment. So how is it that God can both hate the worker of sin, the sinner, the person, and at the same time say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Because God sent his son out of love. And anyone who receives Christ, no matter what they've done, no matter how much sin that they have, grace is greater than their sin. And they can be forgiven and set free. However, sin is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. It's in us. And so we struggle to see how God, as a God who loves and wants to save, can hate anything. But again... Those that continue in sin, those that continue to reject him, will earn his holy and righteous hatred. And that's the difference. We can't put our minds around that because we don't hate in righteousness. We only have a perverted view of that emotion because we're fallen in sin. But in the same sense that, that when you hear about somebody committing a heinous act, just a diabolical act, um, anywhere in the world, you say the name Hitler— and people just instantly go, mm, yeah, that, that was not okay. You hear about things happening in our world today and your stomach just starts to turn. You just start getting angry. Why are you getting angry? Because you know, as a created being by God with a conscience, you know that's not what it's supposed to be. And it turns your stomach. It gets you so upset because to see or to hear of somebody treating somebody that way or hurting people in that way. Now imagine you're a perfect holy God who created all things, and you see your creation consistently living in sin. And I've always thought of it this way. If our good deeds, our good deeds, meaning what we think are good deeds, cause God to want to throw up and vomit, what do you think our sin does before this God? Well, I can tell you what it does. It costs his son's life on the cross to be forgiven. That's how vile it is. And so again, this is not saying that that we should hate individuals, meaning go after them or, or pursue them in hatred. What we're saying is we understand that from God's perfect view, God's perfect holiness, 
that those who continually work in sin have earned his holy hatred. What does Jesus say? If you believe, you're forgiven and free. If you don't believe, you're condemned already. So how is it David could say you hate present tense, all workers of iniquity? Well, number one, he doesn't like that they keep doing it. But number two, he also knows their outcome before their beginning. So again, he can have a hatred towards them. Now again, we have to put it in that context. And I don't want to make it sound like we need to PR God. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to do. I just want us to understand when we hear the word hatred, that really doesn't sit well with us. And again, I think it's from God's point of view. And David is speaking here from what he's understood of God's view as well. And so God, yes, hates the workers of iniquity, but he also says, love your enemies. He gives his life for them. He shows love to them as well. Mm-hmm. That is God's prerogative because he is the creator. He is yep. our judge. He is the one that defines what sin is and, and how we are to live and that fact that we disobey. So whereas we're not with our fellow human beings, we are not their judge. Right. So we can still love the sinner. Mm-hmm. And without loving their sin. Right. Because we're not their judge. Right. Yep. The other thing too is that when God can love the world yet hates Right, right. Right, right. And this is where, again, like, and thank you for pointing that out, because again, I, I think Romans 8, 1, right? There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That means apart from Christ Jesus, what do we have? Condemnation, which is a just result for our sin. And that's going to be poured out on us in the form of wrath, Romans 2. And so wrath is coming from the hatred of God for our sin and those that commit the sin. The problem is that we disconnect sin as an external thing from an internal thing. We think sin is out here. Sin is something we do. No, no. According to God's word, when we are born as sinners, because we have the sin nature, and then we commit sin, we are now liable for that sin. If somebody dies in in their sin, separated from Christ, and is cast into hell, they are not cast into hell because of Adam's sin. They are cast into hell because of their sin. They chose to sin against him. So again, I know this is something that is hard for our human minds to wrestle with because we don't deal in this way. We think of very extremes. You either love or hate. It's not usually both. But again, the Bible says we're supposed to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And not in the people, but in the sin. So we should have a form of hatred as a follower of Christ towards the things that take away from God, that deny God, his holiness, and those type of things. So again, just, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just want to give you an idea of what could be going on here. But I encourage you, do some research, study it out, look into it. Um, And I I think you'll be a little surprised to see the number of commentaries and things that don't really address it. Um, And I understand why, because it's a hard thing to kind of wrestle with. Um, And again, you may come up with a different conclusion than what I'm suggesting. You might come up with a conclusion that seems different. I know a lot of people, Romans 9, uh, what they'll do is they'll take Jacob and Esau and they'll say, well, that's not talking about the individual people. That's talking about national. So it's representing Israel and 
the non-Israelites or those that would be considered the enemies of Israel. Again, some people have done that with that text. The text seems to say Jacob and Esau and mean Jacob and Esau. But again, people have done different things with that text. So you can find different opinion on this. This is just what I came to in my studies of God's word. Next thing that David does. So he talks about the foolish not standing, that God hates all workers of sinful acts. Last thing here that David does is he speaks to the fact that God will destroy those that are violent, murderers, and deceitful. So we see that as well in verse um, 6. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. That word leasing just means lying. So if you have the King James, that's the text that I gave you. If you have another translation, it most likely says lying or lies. Those that speak lies. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. So just verse 6, what do we notice right off the bat? What's, what's referenced in this verse as far as sins? We have violent murderers, right? And what's the other thing? Lying. How many times do you talk about murder? Or violence as far as bloody violence, that idea of murdering someone. Once. How many times do you talk about lying? Twice. That's not how we would gauge that. We would put lying way, that's a little, little thing. But this violence, this bloodiness, this murder, this is way bigger than that. But notice again that he links lying and deceit twice and only talks about the violent acts once. So again, you can jot down Revelation 21.8, listing all the sins. Guess what's listed there among those horrible sins? Lying. And so again, it's interesting to note that David specifically speaks to the deceitfulness or the lying that is going on here. J, uh, the judgment that David is calling for is deserved and right. He's calling for this judgment. He's praying for this judgment. However, God is gracious and merciful to those that will repent. So in these cries, we don't see David talk about repentance, right? Grace, mercy. He just wants destruction over them. This is where we have to be careful because David's fears of losing his life could be coming through here. David's desire for the holiness of God to be magnified could be coming through here. And so that's where you're hearing some of this emotion. But remember, yes, God will judge, but he also is gracious, loving, and those that repent will be forgiven. And when I read this, I kind of think of Jonah, right? Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? What was Jonah's concern about going to Nineveh? Right. He, they, he figured they would repent. And what would God do if they repented? Be merciful and forgive them. He says that. God, I knew you were going to do this. This is why I didn't want to come. And so again, but you hear Jonah's lack of obedience because he thought they deserved something else. No, they don't deserve your mercy and grace. And we do the same thing with people in our lives. Well, no, not them. I'll pray for them. I'll witness to them. But I'm not witnessing them because they don't deserve it. And yet we forget we needed that grace just as desperately. And so again, we hear this in here, but just a reminder, he is going to speak to this idea of those that know, know God, but we have to remind ourselves, God will forgive those that cry out to him. So next verses seven and eight, we see here David's personal prayer. So he's kind of jumping around a little bit. So one through three is kind of that confessional opening statement in prayer. Four, five, and six is this idea of kind of reminding himself of God's character, speaking against the wicked. Seven and eight is David's personal prayer. Nine and 10, he goes back to a call for judgment. And then 11 and 12 is kind of our benediction of the psalm. So you see him kind of jumping around a little bit here in the, in the text. 
So David's personal prayer, verses 7 and 8. Somebody else that would like to read for us real quick? 7 and 8, just two verses. Who'd like to read that for us? Chrissy, thank you. Okay, so here the psalm transitions again back to David's personal prayer of request to God. And David prays for some key things. Some key things you can kind of note as we go through it. So the first thing he wants is to be led. Lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in your righteousness. This is compared to being led in his own idea of righteousness or his own understanding, which would be foolish. So that would make him like those foolish that he's talking about, those wicked He also then prays something else. Make my way straight. Make my way straight. Now, what what do you think of when you hear that? I don't know what you think of. I think of a journey, right? Like GPS is wanting to send you one way. It's all like this. One way is a straight line. That's quicker. It gets me there. Some would actually say what he's really saying is that he's asking, God, I want to follow your path, not my own path. I don't want to go my own route. I want you to make my path straight. So your direction No matter how many ups and downs and ins and outs and detours, it's your path. It's the right way to go. Again, for us, we are reminded of what Jesus said to the disciples. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Now, literally what that means in John 10, 4, when Jesus is saying that, literally it translates to taking the same road he takes. So when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me, we're, as his disciples, taking the exact same road he takes. Now, that's easier said than done when the road gets a little crazy and the direction goes away we didn't expect. But again, David is saying, I want to follow you. Make my path straight. Note also that David speaks to his enemies and their desire, or his desire rather, that they will not distract him from the path God has for him. He says that right there in the, the verses there. It says, uh, lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. When he says that because of mine enemies, he's saying they want to distract me and pull me away and make me go down a different road or make me doubt the road I'm on. But I really want to just make sure my heart is right and I'm focused on you. So again, in this case, there are literally people coming against him trying to move him off this path. I love what one author said about this idea of David's prayer. He says this, we too need guidance from the Lord as we navigate through a world that seeks to conform us to its philosophy and conduct. The evil world system seeks to destroy our testimony as surely as David's enemies wanted to destroy him. So we need to follow the path God has drawn out for us in his word. And I love that David's aware of this. He lived in a culture in a time where people are trying to push and pull him. By the way, we're in the same culture today. We live in a world and in a culture that wants to make us get distracted, get off track, get on the sideline, or take a different road altogether. And we can't allow the wicked around us to get our eyes off of Christ. And he says, keep my mind on you. Keep my eyes on you. I want to stay focused in on you. And what did David do? We read it there in those two verses. What did David do to help keep his mind on the Lord, to keep his eyes on him, to make sure 
He said, make my path straight, which is good to pray that. But then he practically did something that would help that be reinforced in his life. What did he do? Yeah, what, isn't that what it says there in verse 7? I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. I can't even come in the church without your mercy. And in thy fear, I will I, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Worship and time in, I'm going to say church because that's how we'd understand it. Time in the presence of God strengthened David so that he would keep his eyes on the Lord. So many Christians go, Lord, make my path straight. And then they ignore the very resource that God gives us that will help them to do that. Lord, keep my eyes on you. Lord, help my heart to stay focused on you. And he's saying, yes, okay, good. Time in the word is good individually. But I also gave you this thing called the local church. And that's going to come alongside you and help you in that direction. And when Christians ignore the local church gathering, they're actually ignoring the very thing that will accomplish the prayer they're praying. Because again, God allows all of this to work together. Verses 9 and 10. Maybe one, another volunteer, nine and ten. Someone will need this for us. Terry, thank you. Okay, so you see we're jumping back, right? This was David's personal prayer. Now he's jumping back to a call for righteous judgments. So David transitions back to the foolish and wicked, acknowledging their sinfulness and calling for God's appropriate judgment. Destroy thou them, O God. That is an appropriate judgment for their sin. Now we know that destruction is not annihilation. They're not just wiped off the face of the earth. We know that there's going to be eternal punishment, right? Torment in the place of hell, which is rightly deserved. And again, he even admits that. He says, this is because of their sin, their transgression. They've rebelled against you. Now again, remember, David is right there with them. It just so happens that David has cried out for the mercy of God and repented of his sins. So here we see David addressing the specific, their specific sins. So what are some of the sins here? What do we see there in verse 9 and 10? What are some of the, excuse me, some of the sins? Lying. Yep. So you could also note that as um, nothing reliable or trustworthy coming out of their mouth. So everything they say, it's not trustworthy. It's not reliable. What's that? Mm -hmm. So there's the words. They're speaking things that aren't true, right? Not reliable. There's internal wickedness. Right? This idea of what's going on in their heart. And the Bible talks about this. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So there's internal wickedness. And again, sin is not an external problem, but an internal one. What's another sin? Another expression of their sin. Okay, yeah, flattery. What, what's the problem with flattery? Yeah, it's fake. It's not genuine. Proverbs spends a lot of time talking about flattery. Right? Speaking things just to get from someone, but you don't really mean it. Okay? It's, it's actually an example of what? It's not reliable. It's not trustworthy. And it's deceitful. Right? So it's an example of that. Keith, what's that? Yes. Very self-motivated. I'm going to say whatever I need to say to you to get what I want. I said it before. If I say to someone, wow, you look nice today, just so they'll say, you look nice as well, 
that's not a very good thing to do, right? Like you're just seeking that self-approval, acceptance. You want to be recognized. Keith, did I see your hand? Mm. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah, that's a great point. So actually, it's the opposite of just being honest enough to share the gospel. Because the gospel starts with what? I'm a wicked sinner in need of judgment. God is right to judge me. I need forgiveness. So I have to humble myself down to realize who I really am. Flattery does the opposite of that, right? Honestly, that's one of the biggest problems with the prosperity gospel. Or this idea that you're really fine just as you are. Like, you're okay. There's a famous preacher that basically said, uh, when talking about the uh, Apostle Peter, and basically said that all that God did in him after his conversion through the book of Acts was already in Peter at the very beginning. Like, Peter was born with all that, and he always had that in him. He just didn't realize it, and coming to Christ helped draw that out of him. Well, that sounds, man, that's, that sounds great. And when Stephen Furtick said it, everybody cheered. What's the problem? It's heresy. There's no good in me. There's nothing good in me. Only thing good in me is the Holy Spirit because Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to take a residence in me. Paul says it this way. What's in me, oh wretched man? Sin. That's it. But again, do you see how just subtle little things, subtle little changes. And I would argue that's, that's flattery. That's trying to make somebody feel good about themselves. You don't need to do that. If you know Christ, he's working in you. He's gifted you. He's given you talents. And he is doing great things through you. You can praise God for that. I don't need to have some false sense of it's always been in me. No, it hasn't. What's always been in you is the sin that demands sacrifice. It's Jesus Christ. So again, absolutely. What else do we see here as an expression of their sin? Okay, so their throat is an open sepulcher. This is mankind, mankind's speech. It is as corrupt as an open grave. So a modern translation, uh, Julie just said this. Some translations say open grave. So the words is open, right? When it talks about there that their throat is an open sepulcher. That open sepulcher means stands open. Always open. Basically, one commentary said it this way. They are graves permanently open, displaying the corruption of death. As an open grave carries a horrible stench. I mean, just think about the word picture here. This open grave of just this stench of a rotting and decaying corpse. That's what's coming out of their mouth. Now again, not to other people, because how are they receiving it? As flattery. But it's deceitfulness. It's wickedness. And before God, it is vile and disgusting. It's a horrible stench. You could jot this down as well. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. The Apostle Paul is talking about the sin in the world. And he actually uses that same phrase to talk about not just these wicked in Psalm 5, the world in wickedness. Okay? So this group of enemies is led by actually David's son, Absalom. We talked about that last week. He had won a large following through flattery and deceit. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. 
So 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6 reveals to us that these men were led to follow him because of flattery and deceit. And he and his men pursued David to kill him, which we talked about again last week. So here we see the last two verses, and it's, we're over time, 7.05, I apologize, but we'll just do the last two verses. Yeah, according to Facebook, I can go as long as I want. That's what I, that's what I saw. Someone shared a meme, and I'm just taking it at face value. It's literal. Verses 11 and 12. One more volunteer that would like to read. Keith, awesome. Thank you for raising your hand. There was so much excitement, I had to call on him. Awesome. Thank you. So here we see kind of the benediction, the closing of the psalm. David continues, continues his comparison between the fool and the righteous and defines the righteous for us. So how are the righteous defined in those last two verses? So it says it there in verse 11. Yes, those that put their trust in God and not in self. And love his name. Those are the righteous that David's been referring to this whole time. So by definition then, the foolish are those that do not trust in the Lord, put their trust in themselves, and do not love his name. This is exactly how Jesus described the righteous in the Gospels. You could jot down Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. Those that trust in the Lord will be declared righteous. So since we trust in the Lord, the natural result is not fear, but joy. Now, David does talk about fear, does he not? He mentions it in verse 7. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. That fear is not, I'm scared of God. That fear is reverence and elevation of God's name, who God is. And who is God? What is his name? King, Lord, right? These are God. These are the titles of what he's saying. There's a, a reverence here to God. But speaking of this idea of a follower who trusts in God, there is joy, not fear. And you can jot this down. The fruit of joy is always the fruit of a relationship with God by grace. The fruit of joy is always the fruit of a relationship with God by grace. The fruit of joy is always the fruit of a relationship with God by grace. Three times David refers to joy in verse 11. He tells us our joy in him is because as one who trusts in him, we know he will defend us. He will always defend us. And how does he defend us? In verse 12, we read that he will compass us with a shield. Now that word shield is not referring to a small round shield that somebody would carry on their arm. This shield is actually a massive barrier like a door which covers a soldier's entire body. So this is not like a little round shield you would use to defend small arm-to-arm hand-to-hand combat. This is a large shield that's more like a door that covers the entire body of the soldier. And so again, what do we take from this? 
that God's presence in those who trust in him is this idea of a protection that he brings. And his protection is sufficient to keep believers safe at all times, according to his will. I still think it's one of my all-time favorite quotes of David Platt, that when we become a follower of Christ, our safety is no longer our concern. That when we become a follower of Christ, our safety is no longer our concern, that he will watch over us. So, in conclusion to this whole psalm, which I pray has been a blessing to you, and I believe, um, oh, this isn't in your handout, but Psalm uh, 8411 affirms that David wrote what David wrote in Psalm 512. Psalm 8411, you could jot this down on the bottom there, affirms what David wrote in Psalm 512. It actually promises the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This benediction is a way of David reminding himself and those that hear it, that while it may look bleak, God will graciously surround those that are his. The Apostle Paul also spoke to a similar benediction. And I'll give you three references for that. So 1 Corinthians 16.23. 1 Corinthians 16.23. Galatians 6.18. Galatians 6.18. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18. 28. So 1 Corinthians 16, 23, Galatians 6 and verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 28. And so again, what an encouragement from the Psalms, again, to be reminded that no matter what we see in our world around us, no matter what happens in the world around us, that God is not abandoned, has not abandoned us, he's not left us, that he is surrounding us. And I love that word that he compasses us about. He protects us and watches over us in all that we go through. So again, just as an encouragement guys tonight, know that he is with you. And when you trust in him and in his righteousness, he will lead you to victory. It may not look like it in this world, but if we know Christ, we know we have eternal life. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? And to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we trust in him. We keep our eyes on him no matter what the enemy wants to bring around us. And so let's do this. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. And then we'll let you guys be dismissed this evening. Father, Lord, we thank you for your, your word and your guidance. And Lord, I know that many Christians in our world today are so overwhelmed with fear of the situations they find themselves in, things that are happening around us in our world, decisions that are being made by political leaders. There's just so many things that want to distract us and pull us off course, course. But I pray that we would keep our eyes on you. I pray that we would, as David did, pray for our paths to be made straight, our, our direction to be set before us, that we'll walk in you, with you, that the culture that the enemy would not pull us astray. In order for being honest, there's so many, not only believers, but churches that are compromising your word, that are changing even what your word says. And why are they doing that, Lord? Not because you want them to, or you're guiding them to do that, but because the world is pulling them off course. And Lord, it's, it's frustrating and it's upsetting because people are being led astray. 
But I pray, Lord, that we as your church, we as believers would start with us, make sure we're walking in a direction that is honorable to you, pleasing to you, and then through that, your name would be known to others, that they would not trust in themselves, but trust in you and your righteousness, which is given to those who repent from their sins and call on Christ. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that you'd strengthen us in the week ahead in all that we have going on. And again, Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Have a great and safe 4th of July. Enjoy some time together with family and friends. And we'll see you guys Wednesday at 7 o'clock.